what's the big issue there? The big issue for this kind of unfarmed biosecurity uh, is compliance. You know, how can you convince people to do what we know works? That's the biggest challenge. So I've been re- uh, doing research uh, on this and uh, recently just got funds from the uh, United States to do work in Canada and United States looking at, at ways to increase compliance uh, in the entry rooms when people get in. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada, Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Veterinary Services, and Demeter Services Veterinaries. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. The Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners Nutrition Group offer the full range of nutritional product based on extensive research and developments and a solid team of experts all across Canada. Our objective is to provide cost-effective solutions, innovation, and support to producer from the entire Canadian swine industry. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of the Swine It Canada podcast. Uh, my name is Dan Columbus, and I will be your host for today's episode. And with me today, I have Dr. Jean-Pierre Valancourt, who is a professor in the Department of Clinical Sciences in the University of Montreal's Faculty of Veterinary Medicine. So uh, how are you doing today, Jean-Pierre? Well, doing pretty good. Thank you. How about you? I'm fantastic. I'm fighting back a little bit, bit of a cold, but I'm hopefully it doesn't interfere too much with the the, the, the talk today. Um, I would like to thank you for for joining us today. It's a it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, but since some of our audience may not be familiar with you, before we get into the topic of today, I'll just ask you to introduce yourself and give a little bit of the, uh, to the audience uh, some of your background and, and journey so far. Yes. Well, I'm a veterinarian. I graduated from the vet school in Montreal. Then I did uh, a master's degree in clinical sciences, and that was swine work, uh, looking uh, working on percent of pneumonia. Uh, that's way back in the 20th century. And uh, then I moved to Minnesota to work with Al Lehman, Gary Dial, Will Marsh, these people uh, on uh, pre-winning mortality. Uh, but my uh, family background is in poultry, and I had an opportunity at the University of Guelph of uh, having a faculty position, uh, but in, in poultry epidemiology, because I've got epidemiology training. So that's what I did. Uh, but uh, since I've been working mainly on biosecurity, it always brings me back to uh, pigs, because it's certainly something very important there. Uh, and, and after Guelph, uh, I went to North Carolina State University. Uh, there again, 
uh, I did poultry work, but it's a big uh, swine state. So uh, I got to work with people there a little bit as well. And now I'm back uh, at the University of Montreal. I've been, I was away almost 20 years, but uh, probably finishing my career in Montreal. It's a, you, you've been all over. It's an amazing uh, background and some big, some big names in there too. I know the, the Lehman will, will definitely ring some bells for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was also uh, almost a year at uh, La UNAM. Uh, it's a, a university uh, vet school in, in Mexico. Um, so where I learned some Spanish there and, um, and I, I've been also spent a year in Toulouse in France, um, taking advantage. Uh, that's what's nice about, uh, being a professor. So we get to go around and often have people pay for us. So that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, one of the, one of the perks It makes all the work worthwhile a little bit. So, I mean, you, you mentioned it already in your history is very much in, in the biosecurity and I think that's going to be a, a topic of, of interest to our audience, given, uh, you know, just increases in, in disease outbreaks that we're hearing. And obviously with the threat of African swine fever, that's always kind of in the back of everybody's mind. So I guess let's just we'll move into the topic today and I'll let you open up with, you know, the, what biosecurity is, what it means to you, like some of the work you've been doing in that area. Sure. Uh, well, you know, first of all, uh, one reason I got into this is when I arrived at NC State, uh, they told me, they said, you know, if you want to become a full professor, you're going to have to convince us that uh, in your field, if there would be a big issue nationally, uh, you would be shortlisted by the White House. And so I figured, OK, uh, I've got epidemiology training, so you, we often kind of go in different directions. But I decided to focus on biosecurity. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, and it wasn't just not only planes. We also had bioterrorism at that time. Uh, so they got an interest in, in what I was doing. Uh, and, and so that kind of uh, was very useful to me in a way, unfortunately, for the events. But uh, uh, got me uh, going, working on biosecurity, which is essentially all sorts of measures that you can put in place to uh, minimize the risk of disease transmission uh, between, in our case here, between uh, pigs, uh, either on the farm and also between farms within uh, the same region. So um, the thing that I've noticed very quickly, uh, and looking into it, I could demonstrate that virtually all the main biosecurity measures uh, that we're trying to put in place in swine um, actually, you can find them in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, the, there's two major principles for on-farm biosecurity. Uh, one is that you need to reduce sources of contamination. And then the second one is you want to bring a distance between any source of contamination, of infection, and your pigs. Well, these two principles, they come from text that were published, actually written, over 2,400 years ago. Um, so we have not invented anything. So why are we still struggling with infectious diseases and trying to figure out how to uh, control them? Well, turns out that um, it's like losing weight. We know how to lose weight. That doesn't mean we're going to do it. Uh, we, we, know, we know how to control diseases pretty much. Uh, but often 
people will get lazy or may not be aware of what needs to be done because there's a lot of traffic on farms and, uh, and that leads to diseases. So what's the big issue there? The big issue for this kind of on-farm biosecurity uh, is compliance. You know, how can you convince people to do what we know works? That's the biggest challenge. So I've been re uh, doing research uh, on this and uh, recently just got funds from uh, United States to do work in Canada and United States looking at, at ways to increase compliance uh, in the entry rooms when people get in. Uh, do they change boots properly? Do they wash their hands? That kind of stuff. Uh, do, they, that, do they do that systematically? How can we get them to, uh, to do that? So um, I've been working with technical people uh, for example, using sensors so that we can figure out who's coming in, uh, whether they change boots or not, uh, so we can, first of all, have data uh, to show them to use for training, but also uh, to give them feedback, real-time feedback, uh, you know, an alarm saying, hey, whoa, uh, you haven't changed your boots, you're not using the, the farm boots, or you haven't, you have not activated the uh, Purell dispenser, uh, you know, your hands are not being decontaminated, that kind of stuff. But that's not enough, you know. Uh, you, you, you try to make it as much human nature proof, okay, not to say idiot proof, um, possible. But then so that it's a people's game. So biosecurity in that sense you know, and here I'm not going to talk about, for example, HEPA filters, because that's also important, you know, to sometimes to to have some biofilters uh, for the air uh, in pigs in particular. But all that uh, on-farm biosecurity measures, uh, all these that are associated with people activities, uh, they require working on people. So I'm actually working with an industrial psychologist. Uh, who, who's, who's got great training in uh, helping companies uh, to get employees to do what they're supposed to do. It's, it's that, you know, it's easier to say than to actually get done. And, and so we're developing, uh, we, we're using uh, uh, tools uh, that they have validated uh, and they are, and they're available in French and English and Spanish. Uh, which is all very useful in North America, uh, tools to assess people's personality because we know that your personality uh, is associated with compliance. Like some people will be more likely to comply, you know, the same way if you have kids, uh, you may have a kid that's more likely to get in trouble than the other one. Well, you know, some they like to follow rules, some not. It's a personality thing in, in part. But then personalities, it's nice to know, but you cannot change a personality or it's very difficult. But you can work on emotional intelligence. So what's your self-awareness, your self-management, your uh, relationship with wor other workers, with people? All that can be modified, can be worked on, can be improved. It's rare that we can say you can improve somebody's intelligence. But if we talk about emotional intelligence, we can actually work on this, uh, use that in the training so that we can overall improve uh, compliance. So we're looking at two things. 
we're looking at ways to improve the training because there's all sorts of training out there. You do a Google on biosecurity videos, you're going to get hundreds of videos. Uh, they, all, they all have one thing in common. Uh, nobody's bothered to check if they work, if they have an impact at all, okay? Uh, we are getting set to assess um, if compliance is good or not, and if whatever we do leads to better compliance. So um, it's, it's, this is a field that is in, um, it's kind of uh, in development. It's uh, more and more uh, on the front burner, I would say. Uh, but it's not easy to get funding for this, you know, because people go and say, okay, well, what's the cost benefit of, of uh, redoing our training program or, or, or putting uh, sensors so that we can, you know, with antennas or whatever, uh, how much is that going to cost? Is that going to really prevent a disease? Uh, the problem, of course, with prevention is that sometimes you don't really know if you're preventing, if nothing happens. Uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you were not at risk uh, yeah. or maybe you, you were and that prevented it. So uh, it, it takes a lot of time and effort and many farms to eventually get that information. So it, it's, it's not easy, but we're working on it because of what you mentioned. Uh, we're being challenged, as a matter of fact, uh, just about on, on the world stage, just about every year, there's an emerging or re-emerging important disease in swine or poultry. In humans, it's like four or five a year. Okay, like COVID, for example, that was a spectacular one. But, but, but we had others in the same year. Uh, so emerging, re-emerging diseases, this is something that happens all the time. Uh, so uh, we need... To, to find ways to adapt measures that work on a given farm. Because that's another thing. The principles are the same. You know, trying to reduce sources of contamination. So we wash, we disinfect, we, um, we, uh, we, we will uh, blow heat into a, you know, a vehicle to try to uh, kill all the viruses and bacteria and all that. And, and then bringing a distance... Uh, like with um, with uh, African swine fever, uh, if you would have uh, uh, pigs outside, well, you need a double fence, you know, uh, uh, yeah, mainly in Europe and places like that. Um, but even in North America, you know, we, we estimate that we have between three to five million uh, wild hogs uh, in North America. They're virtually, most of them, of course, are in the United States. But with climate change, we can see that huge herd kind of moving up, you know, they're starting to be quite noticeable out west. And uh, we know we have a few hundreds in, in Quebec where I am. And so we need, and people are going with uh, more and more uh, people would be willing to still uh, eat meat, but they want meat that was done that, that with, with animals that were raised properly for them. And that often includes being raised outside, you know, uh, and the problem with that, of course, is that anything raised outside is more at risk of many things. And, um, and so we, we are looking uh, and often using other countries almost as a lab. Like, for example, for me, my favorite lab is France. Um, you know, it's, 
it's a it's a nice lab to be in. Uh, the food, the wine, everything is good, uh, and um, and and also they have a, a mosaic of production. They um, you go all the way south uh, to and 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 they they raise pigs outside. They sometimes will commingle pigs from two or three different farms on the same uh, um, you know field. Uh, so that's really crazy in a way for us. But uh, but there's a lot of people willing to pay more now to to get meat produced in what they call a more ethical way, uh, and so we're looking at the way they're trying to handle this and and see how could we adapt that uh, for us, for example, in Canada and in the U.S. as well. Yeah, th- this idea of compliance is really interesting, and I think. You mentioned COVID, and I think that was a very good social experiment on compliance because I think we saw how drastic it can be, right, with the different personalities and who's willing to to comply. I almost don't like that word because it almost sounds like you're just rolling over and doing, uh, right? But it is, you know, understanding why you're doing it and and why it's important, right? So you mentioned personality, and maybe it's a, it might be a little bit preliminary because I know you're just getting into that work but are there are there key personality characteristics that kind of you know that will indicate and 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 when you mention like the the um the ways of getting people to comply are there are there certain things that seem to be maybe a little bit more uh um uh, effective when it comes to getting people to either change or to 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 do this yeah well we actually did research on that on personalities and we could we could show that uh, uh between two extremes in terms of personality uh you would have some people who would be like 12 13 14 times more likely to comply compared to others and and there there's several traits uh, when it comes to personality, you know, dominance, persuasion, uh, uh, direct approach, uh, uh, being emotional, altruism. There's also stuff like that. We have three uh, th- uh, traits that have been associated with compliance. Uh, one is called responsibility. Another one is complexity. And the third one is action-oriented. So um, there's people that have a tendency to, uh, first of all, they 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 are very favorable to being uh, uh, offered guidelines and rules. Uh, they, it's natural for them. Uh, they like to take responsibility for things. They also like uh, complexity. So it's not discouraging them to look at uh, different actions that might be needed overall to achieve, achieve a certain goal. And, and they are action-oriented. They want to get something done. So these types of individuals are much more likely to comply. Now, what we need to do, uh, one thing to keep in mind, you know, even in, in a university, we talk about uh, pedagogy. Uh, well, pedagogy is, is learning for children, okay? Uh, we should be talking about andragogy, which is learning for adults, because we're teaching adults. People on farms, unless you're talking about teenage kids, working there either part-time or they are the kids from the grower. By and large, we're dealing with an adult population. And uh, we need to consider uh, a few things there. First of all, adults need to know why we ask them to do something. You cannot just say, okay, I want you to do this. That's it. 
Uh, you could, but you're not likely to get a lot of compliance. Uh, so that's the first thing. They need to know why. They need to feel respected, and you need to consider their own experience. I see it all the time. When I give a talk, and um, uh, the more I'm dealing with growers or technicians or veterinarians who have experience, the more I can tell that whatever I say, they contrast that with their own experience and how they feel about things. And so you cannot train without considering that aspect. You have like somebody who's been in, in the business 30 years. Uh, they've had um, for 30 years, every day they change foot baths, maybe twice a day. Okay. And then I come in and I say, you know what? That's worthless. Okay. Um, it's, it's worthless. And we know that we've known that for decades. Um, it's even in, in documents from uh, the World uh, Animal Health Organization, where they say, essentially, I could quote it, saying, well, um, you know, people would have to stay in a foot bath a few minutes for the foot bath to be effective. Uh, but even if they don't, having a foot bath is a good reminder about biosecurity. So we should still uh, um, promote that. Uh, well, my attitude is like, uh, no, no, no. I mean, if it doesn't work, you don't want to do that. But here's the problem. You go and say, I can demonstrate to you that all the disinfectants, all the products that you're using in a foot bath are certainly very good, but virtually none of them uh, have much of an impact over a few seconds. You need five to 10 minutes of contact time. Okay. And so, uh, therefore, foot baths, by and large, uh, and we have uh, research has been done showing that Within minutes, sometimes, as soon as you get organic material in there, it, it's not only not working, it's actually increasing the contamination level of your boots. So the problem that I've been told then is, uh, well, here's the problem. I've been coaching people for 30 years, getting them to do that. If I tell them overnight, well, you know what? Eh, forget about that. Uh, I'm going to lose my credibility on everything, Right. So, but then you need to come up with an alternative. And that's when I tell them, I said, well, you know, dry chlorine put in a foot bath actually will get you to reduce by almost two logs, like, like, or over about 90% reduction in contamination. And, and you just need to change it every other week. Uh, how about that? So you can go and say, uh, well, foot baths are still important but we got a better product now, you know? This way you don't lose your credibility. So it's a lot of stuff like that that you need to take into consideration uh, in order not to lose people. And, and the other thing is, you need to look at the situation on every farm. And if you have several employees, the key is to try to get them to come up with the solutions. Because uh, I've been on farms, sometimes big farms, you know, 3,000 sows, and they have like seven, eight, nine employees there. And um, if I come in as a, an expert, right? Uh, and I come in, in in English in particular with my strange accent, they're going to go and say, who the heck is this guy? And he's telling us what to do. He does not even work here. He's not signing my paycheck. Uh, they will be polite. They will smile. And by the time you're gone, they're already moving back to their traditional ways. So 
so what you need to do, um, mainly if you're a technician, you're a veterinarian, you're people advising, well, you need to find ways uh, to get these people. First of all, then the job of, 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 of a leader then is to say, We've, we have identified these issues. You know, we have this problem about maintaining the integrity of the interim. Um, we have this problem about having an easy way to get our hands decontaminated. Then you say, well, do you have anything to propose? And then you get them to find the solutions. If you do that, then it's a little bit more difficult to neglect your own solutions, to neglect what you came up with, you say. So things like that, there's a lot of stuff that we need, and a lot of it, as you can see, has to do with uh, people issues and how you manage people, uh, how you approach them, uh, and how you maintain also uh, uh, what you're doing. Because, for example, we did a study where we looked at visible cameras. We're going to put cameras uh, and have uh, people made aware that we have cameras. We're watching them, right? Um, I've been on a farm in the United States where they put 24 cameras in a, a 3,200 uh, uh unit, uh, 24 cameras. It doesn't cost a lot of money. These cameras now, you put one in an entry room, it's a few hundred dollars, including the recording system. So it's not a big deal. But there's a reason why reality TV works, is that after a few days or a few weeks, people forget the cameras there. So, for example, that would be one approach that will work for a week or two. After that, you reduce, you have less impact. But then you can say, well... Let's keep those cameras and use them for teaching so we can review and get video clips out of it and show that to the employees and say, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Or the other way around, what is really great about what we just saw? See? Because that's another thing, incentives. Okay? You want to achieve good compliance, whatever the business. That includes NASA. Okay? Uh, that includes, I mean, Taylor Swift right now is in the news because she has the means to give big incentives, right? She just gave like a $100,000 bonus to employees. Uh, yeah, we won't see that on Swine Farms. But there's a lot of incentives you can give people that are not costly and that are positive because an incentive can be positive or negative. Negative is if I find you another time doing this, you're fired. That is a negative incentive, I, and that needs to be clearly stated, right? I mean, one thing we've noticed when we investigate disease outbreaks is that virtually almost half the employees, uh, if you ask them, uh, if we could demonstrate that you're actually at the origin of the problem, that it was your uh, um, uh, lack of uh, action or or whatever you did that that was at the origin of the infection. What do you think would happen to you? And remarkably, half the employees don't know. They have no idea. I don't think that's normal. They should know exactly what will happen to them if they don't comply. However, they should also have positive incentives if they do comply. So I'll give you an example uh, in, in uh, poultry. In turkeys, um, they can no longer have um, natural... Uh, reproduction because the the males now they're reaching uh, uh, fifty kilos uh, and the females are just fifteen kilos. So you can imagine 
it, it ain't going to work. So they do artificial insemination. It's really quite a job to work in that environment to go get the sperm and then inseminate and all this, mainly in July, August when it's warm. So um, I've seen a, a, a crew member, uh, a leader, go and say, okay, guys, uh, this week is hot, it's humid, uh, you may lose your temper, it's easy to be a bit rougher with the animals. Um, I want to see you take care of the animals correctly throughout. Uh, I don't want any uh, uh, problem this way and all that. And if you guys do that, on Friday, we'll stop, uh, stop working at 3. I'll pay you till 5. I'm buying the beer. You know, something like that. Uh, uh, so it doesn't have to be extremely expensive. But uh, sometimes it's just like, hey, I saw you, uh, what you did today. That's great. That's remarkable. Sometimes just to be told you're doing it right is, is something really nice. So all these things need to be factored in if we want to improve uh, compliance. I, I think it's important you bring up the good fact. You know, a lot of times we focus on the negative outcomes of something if there isn't, and we forget about the positive and, and giving. I'm, I'm guilty of that myself with my students, right? It's very easy to go and point out everything that's wrong in the paper that they wrote and not say, oh, yeah, but this part's okay, <laughs> you know, or, or good, and congratulations. So I think it's interesting. Um I mean, you, you also mentioned, you know, basically the two other things that I, I refer to as the dogma, right, of the something that you've been doing for 30 years that, well, we've been doing it for so long, you've convinced yourself it works, even though it doesn't. You know, and it, it's very hard to, to, to go up against that. I do that all the time where I tell people, creep feeding doesn't do anything, but you're fighting against the industry that thinks that, you know, it does, and we might as well keep doing it just in case, right? And and how do you how do you argue that? I like your idea of like, okay, well, What's the alternative then? What is something else, you know, that we can put in place to then potentially have that? So, And we need to innovate here. And, and uh, here I'm going to uh, go back to my days with Al Lehman. Um, Al was uh, uh, quite something. He would go on a farm and uh, he had an ability to, uh, he would go and congratulate people for what he would see. He would pinpoint everything that, that was fine. Yeah, of course, he would say if something was not right, but by and large, um, by the time he would be done on a farm, uh, the feedback I would get from the employees or the grower was, well, if Al was impressed this time, that's nothing. Wait till next month when he comes back. You know, he, he had a way like that. And I remember one day, Al uh, got all the graduate students in the room was a Friday afternoon, and he said um, to us, you know, I'm concerned about you people. And so we were like, okay, <laughs> what's going on? He is, uh, now, he was my advisor, but, but he, was, uh, he was also the, the boss of the swine group. And so all the students, including those who were not his students, were kind of waiting to see what else he would have to say. And he said, I've noticed one thing, is that you guys make no mistake. Not at all. And he said, that's not normal. He said, uh, yeah, if, if you're doing that, it's because you're not pushing it enough. You're not, uh, you, you know. So his point, of course, he says, you know, don't burn down the building. But he says, if you make a, you push, you try something, you try something original, uh, you try to be innovative and it doesn't work out, uh, I'll be there with you. And for you, I'll back you up. And, and, and so because the idea here is to uh, uh, move forward. 
uh, to make progress. Another guy who actually started his career when I was a graduate student in, in Minnesota was Bob Morrison. Okay, um, I had a very good relationship with Bob, and uh, and 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 Bob was somebody who was very close to people, always at the same level of everybody, and he was adding several dimensions to what he was doing. So, for example, he was a vet. Okay, he was technically an epidemiologist, but he also got an MBA. Because he wanted to be able to argue with growers about uh, or present growers with, okay, you can do this or do that. This is the cost benefit. You know, this is how we could, uh, how this could, would likely be uh, valuable. In some cases, maybe it's not worth investing that much in this measure. You should focus on another one that will pay better over time. Uh, so his goal was not to have the ultimate best, ultimate like uh, uh, production records, but to be very viable to get the, the best return on investment. So uh, when we talk with growers, uh, I think growers, uh, technicians, they're very quick to figure out if you have any field experience or if you're talking from textbooks, okay? So when you go on farms, when we try to improve our security or we have a situation, it's important to connect uh, where they are and demonstrate that, that we know that the field. Uh, we know what's required, how much painful it can be if we ask to do this or that. Say, uh, because nothing worse than to give the impression that we're come, you're talking about being a, a, a professor or you know, being out there in your own ivory tower. Uh, if you get that label, um, then you won't be effective, right? And, and, and you don't need to be a professor for that. It, it could be a technician. It could be anybody else. If they seem to be too abstract, they don't realize that uh, there's a cost for everything. Uh, if I'm going to take more time to, to do something at the, uh, in the entry room, well, there's a cost, you know? Yeah, it's, it's building that that. that- that reputation and the credibility, right? That, that comes in so that they're willing to listen to you. You know, it, 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 it reminds me of it in early days in the COVID where they first said, okay, no masking. And then they said masking here and then and they kept changing it. And then everybody just thought, well, like, what, what are you trying to tell us here? Right. And it, it really damaged that reputation. So obviously it's, it's really important to, to keep that going. Yeah, that, that's certainly one thing. Now, I, um, the one thing is, if you're not going in the right direction, I think it's important to be able to adjust. But you need to do a good job at explaining why that's being done. And they didn't do a very good job uh, sometimes, depending on the province. Um, uh, you know, in, in Quebec, for example, uh, the one thing that, that, that made the province uh, uh, having more problems, uh, mainly with uh, uh, places where older people uh, lived, is that uh, they had a, uh, there were, they, all the places, retirement homes, uh, had a, uh, were missing employees. And their solution was to have teams moving around to, uh, to take care of of any kind of uh, uh, greater needs in one place or another. I mean, 
when you're in the, in the swine business, you know that that's the last thing you need to do. You're you're better off to be uh, to be short of an employee or two instead of of starting to move them around uh, at the rate they were doing. You know, uh, I, I was uh, a guy from the Wall Street Journal uh, contacted me uh, early on in COVID and said, "I said, well, why do you want to talk to me about COVID?" Says, "Well, says I'm writing a paper where the angle is going to be." Um, if swine growers would have been in charge, maybe we would have handled this better. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, well, yeah, as, as long as uh, these growers would, would, would be uh, systematic in, in their approach. But yeah, the, uh, the average uh, swine guy there uh, knows very well that that movement of animals, of people, of equipment, that's a risk. And, and if you absolutely need to do it, you need to do it right. You see, uh, and so of course, um, uh, you know the the big and when you look at hospitals, for example, the one thing that's quite obvious when you go to a, a human hospital is that infectious diseases is not their thing, right? Uh, they you, know, you look at the curriculum in medical schools, and infectious diseases. I mean, there's one thousand four hundred eighty infectious diseases in humans. Okay. But in developed countries like Canada, um, we don't have the vast majority of these diseases. So it's not a very, you know, doctors are more trained to deal with pe people with respiratory issues because of allergies or, or, or they have diabetes or that kind of stuff. Uh, but when it comes to infectious diseases, uh, they're, they're pretty thin. Uh, there and they also don't have an understanding. I remember uh, way back again, 20th century. Um, I had a girlfriend who had three uh, cats, three cats. Now the problem was I'm allergic to cats. See, and so I consulted with a specialist for him to help me out, to help me out. And and the first thing he says, well, first thing those cats are out. And I was like. <laughs> No, no, you don't get it. <laughs> I'll be out before the cats. Okay. So this guy told me he was probably brilliant as a, um, you know, allergist, uh, um, you know, uh, specialist, uh, allergist specialist, but, but he, he was clueless, uh, uh, clueless about, about human nature. Um, you know, you don't tell somebody who has pets like that. Uh, oh, well, you know, if you want me to go back there. Uh, mainly when there are solutions, you know, I mean, there are ways and I found ways. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that as I go back to that aspect of understanding people, knowing people uh, so that you can approach them properly to get them to work with you uh, to, to in increase this, uh, this compliance thing. Well, God, God forbid it happens again. Hopefully they come to some vets and some producers to come up with a plan for the next time around. Well, they already are <laughs> discussing that. Um, I was at a meeting, a public health uh, meeting in Quebec. And, um, I, that, you know, we we're talking about highly pathogenic avian influenza. And I told them uh, before that meeting, uh, I said, you know what? Uh, I'm almost as scared of you as I am of the virus. And, and I'll tell you why, because if that virus becomes zoonotic, so can not only infect people, but get them sick, I understand that it's public health officials that need to be in charge because now it's a human disease problem as well. But I said, you don't know anything about poultry production. 
And so you're going to make decisions, potentially, that could create, uh, cause more harm than, uh, than, more harm than, than doing nothing. So, um, so then they invited me to give a talk about that, you see? So at least they're totally open about this. And one thing I recommended is I told them, I said, public health officials for a few months should go and spend uh, half a day, once a month, on a farm, okay? If you can get a farmer to welcome you, and um, because I've seen it done in France, where there were guys, including researchers, you know, people who are molecular biologists and all that, and these guys that had never been on a farm, their thing was the genome, you know, and things like that. And, and, and they were forced to go on like a swine farm. And I remember talking to one of these guys who said, you know what? At first we were really mad. We thought we're going to lose half a day. So he said, I figured, okay, I need to be on a swine farm. What am I going to do? So I'm going to, to pick the place that's the least disturbing. So he said, I got a chair, a book, because I was planning on reading, and got into the uh, post-winning unit, okay? Because it's not full of big sows and all that. Still smell bad, but I could sit there, have my book. But he said, I never read. So I started looking at these piglets and started noticing things about their environment, them, how they play together, how they fight. And all of a sudden, I got a bunch of ideas when it came to research and do stuff like that. Well, the same way, you know, if you have a decision maker who doesn't have the field experience, you need to say, you got to go and get it. Doesn't mean you need to spend six months shoveling manure, but you need to have that contact. Another problem I saw, like in the United States, I was asked by a company to do an audit of their biosecurity. And that company had like feed mills and stuff like that. And they, um, and, and, and even people at the feed mills had to take a shower before getting in and all this. And of course, they were going to go to farms. And as I was questioning, um, uh, I realized uh, one, one employee said, you know, uh, uh, we're the only ones taking showers uh, to go on these wine farms because uh, uh, the manager won't, won't take a shower. So I asked the manager, I said, why won't you take a shower? He says, well, you know, I supervise a lot of farms and I know where I've been. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, and you do see the viruses as well. I mean, uh, you know where you step. You know, I mean, what, what is that? And, and, and I've seen that again and again in North Carolina. Uh, I've seen it where uh, you, would, um, you would have employees who would learn from management that it's not always necessary to, to take a shower, you know? And, and, and it comes, so the leadership is very important. Everything has to be considered in order to improve the overall biosecurity. Another thing also is to find ways to have like uh, two or three different steps that if they miss one or miss two, well, the third one may prevent uh, the, the transmission, you know? Uh, so we need to, but that's where, again, you need to look at the employees and say, what would be your, your best way to achieve this, what we're trying to, to achieve, that would be the least painful, the least expensive. It does not have to be high tech. You know, I'm talking about sensors and all that, but it could be very low tech stuff 
that would allow you to actually achieve what you want to achieve in terms of biosecurity. And, and, and that's great, you know. Uh, that, 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 and that, that brings me also to another thing, sharing, sharing information, data sharing. Look at Bob Morrison. Uh, he became kind of famous uh, with his swine health management, you know, data bank. Uh, he got people to trust him, to, uh, to, to gather data so that the data could then be made available to others because data is power. Uh, and, but in, when it comes to biosecurity or disease control, it's not a power that you want to keep to yourself. You know, uh, when we're talking about big disease, I'm not talking coccidiosis here. I'm talking PERS, you know, I'm talking, uh, African swine fever diseases like that. We need to share data. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, cause you brought it up a couple of times. You mentioned earlier on the, the outdoor raised pigs and the, these niche markets that are coming up, right? Cause the, the, some consumers want that, you know, they want the pig that's raised outdoors and in a better, or, you know, what they consider a better environment or something like that. And, um, <clears throat> these also tend to be more of the small scale producers that aren't really part of the, the bigger industrial process so the communication with them is a little bit different their ideas of biosecurity and, and that are a little bit different so how would you recommend having that discussion with them and and, and you know bringing up this topic and, and getting more compliance with them because like you said they are the the higher risk uh proportion of the industry right yeah well in canada i would tell you there are uh in the u.s to, uh, as well um there, there's a few ways you can do that uh you mentioned really uh, uh, the big issue, of course, is that you have the big, bad uh, 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 swine industry, uh, and, and then you have these smaller players who, who feel that, that they are in a comp competition or that they're going to be pushed over, stuff like that. So these guys are not the best uh, people to take any kind of leadership. Leadership can come from two places in particular. One, uh, Ministry of Agriculture of a province. Okay, so if you can have a swine specialist working for the Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry of Agriculture, it's us, right? It's it's working for the province, uh, somebody to help uh, to, uh, to to help the community, uh, help the industry. That person is in a, a better position to interact with these smaller people, uh, organiz um, farms. Another thing is. Uh, then to encourage these farms to be organized. They tend to do it now. They know that they're small, but if they can get together, they may have a little bit more leverage or be heard by uh, government officials. So you need to get to know who, who are the leaders, get the people from the ministry to engage with them. And the last uh, uh, group of indivi individuals would be university professors. Okay, um, I, I in Quebec there's a, a group um, of uh, farmers. They're small farmers. They're not. Uh, they do swine, poultry. They do all sorts of stuff, and uh, but they're not lined up with the big swine producers or poultry producers and all that. They're not part of their unions or organizations, uh, but they do have one with. They're four thousand members, and I was telling them. I said, you know what? 
Um, I have a bias towards the swine poultry industry. I was born in the poultry industry. I've worked for decades. I studied with swine. Uh, and I have, a, I have a, a positive outlook there and, and a positive bias. That being said, um, you know, I work at the university. I work for the community. The vast majority of my income doesn't come from tuitions, come from the government. And so you pay your taxes you are contributing. You have the right to be in business. Okay, you're not illegal. All this means, if you want to have access to our resources, you will maybe in a position to help. Another incentive for us, for example, at the vet school, is that uh, whether it's in Guelph and Saskatoon, Calgary, PEI, and all that, uh, and certainly uh, University of Montreal, Saint Saint, is that our students more and more. They want to be able to help these people. Uh, they may not be specializing in swine, but uh, as they're doing uh, cattle uh, or dairy, for example, they may be asked to help with a small swan farm. And so they want to get training that will fit for this kind of, and they find it more ethical as well and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's good then uh, we get to get closer to them. We can help them. It provides us with teaching material. So it can be a win-win-win type strategy there. But I, I, I'm pretty convinced that having a specialist, in swine specialist, that is uh, appreciated in the community, you know, in your province and uh, for, for the ministry, and then having at least one university, doesn't have to be a vet, uh, it, it has to be somebody who's well respected in the um, you know the the, the swine uh, community uh, overall. Uh, the, you know the, the uh, uh, vets can can play a, a certain role, but quite frankly, between a very good swine specialist who's not a vet and a vet swine specialist, the only difference is the vet can prescribe. Okay, but but when we're talking about biosecurity, there's no prescription. You know, uh, and so you can have a extremely good, experienced uh, uh, swine uh, professionals who are not veterinarians, but they can help uh, farms, these smaller farms, to find solutions to improve. And but part of it also is to to get them to learn the fact that it's in their own interest. Like they may not be motivated at first, but we can show them data. You know, okay, you want to do things your way, but this is your higher risk here, okay? Don't complain that something happens, you know? So I think that's the way to go. Yeah, that's the thing. We're all in this together, right? We, will, we want them to succeed. We're not enemies here. <laughs> we just want to make sure that it doesn't result in a disaster in the industry as a result. So, yeah, so... I mean, we, we've been having a great conversation. I wish we could go longer, uh, but I think we might have to have a second episode if we want to do longer. Um, so I mean, before I get to the our final three questions, though, I will uh, just ask if there's one kind of take-home message that you want the listeners to get from today's uh, episode, You know, what would that be? Well, uh, the take-home message is that biosecurity is a people's game, is a people uh, issue. And and so they need to focus on that. They can have a biosecurity plan on paper, uh, but is it actually applied correctly on the farm? So they need to have a critical look uh, at their farm, their situation, 
to say, am I set up properly? Is it easy to change boots, for example, uh, in the anteroom? Uh, if it's complicated, well, people won't. So have a look at that. It's a human uh, issue by and large. Yeah, I think a uh, great message. And hopefully people take that and go back and look at what they're doing and, and evaluate to make sure they're doing it right and doing it and actually doing it, <laughs> you know, so. It's time for our famous three. Working with nature and not against it, Piglets Fed AX3 see significant and improved feed efficiency. Producers know the reality of needing to reduce antibiotic and zinc use. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in barn performance, piglet health, and minimizes the need for zinc in the diet. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. That's www.protecta.com. So at the end of every episode, we ask everybody the same three questions, uh, just a, a little bit related but unrelated to the topic. Uh, the first being, what would be your favorite uh, go-to swine or agricultural-related resource? Well, if you're looking at swine, I'll go with uh, these of swine, the uh, uh, the health swine disease Bible. Uh, I tell you why. Uh, first of all, it's 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 got a great track record. Uh, they always come up with a new uh, edition every four or five years. Uh, but the main thing is. Um, if I have a problem, um, I will find the essentials in there, including the name of who wrote the chapter uh, and uh, or, the, or the, including the co-authors. Because one thing I do, the, the, the books that I appreciate the most are the books where I can figure out who uh, is the right person so that I can contact that person. Nowadays, with social media, the, uh, uh, you know, um, emails and all that. It's fairly easy and remarkably, even people you don't know, if you contact them and you say, hey, I've got this issue, um, they'll reply. Uh, so in my case, uh, I can understand that for a, a swine grower, that would not be this of swine, but I'll go with this of swine. No, it's a, it's a good one, obviously important. I like your idea of you know, knowing who wrote it so that you know who to go to. <laughs> Uh, so our, our next question is, uh, outside of agriculture, then, what is your favorite book or resource? Well, I've, I've got a few. Uh, they, uh, but in terms of, uh, well, a, re a resource for, for my field, or it can be anything, right? Uh, I've, I found a book uh, recently that has to do with, um, it's a French title, but it's about uh, the Pope's animals. Um, the, uh, in the Vatican, you know, the Vatican is technically something that's several hundred years old. Uh, and, um, it's just not where the Pope is or the Catholic, uh, uh, church, uh, is, uh, as the leadership, uh, the Vatican per se, uh, historically was a place where it was like Michael Jackson's uh, place. You know, you, you could have an elephant there. You had giraffes. You had all sorts of animals. And they, they had a lot of animals given to them uh, by leaders of, 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 of kingdoms, of tribes, uh, you know, going back centuries. Um, and they documented that. Um, and it's remarkable uh, what they learned because they, 
um, in, the, in the Vatican, as I said, uh, you had like uh, scientists. You had uh, uh, and and you look at how they they manage these animals and the um, symbols associated with these animals. Uh, if it's really something that is a mix of of learning history uh, and learning about animals. Uh, learning about the relationship between animals and humans or how also uh, animals are perceived by humans because of all the, the, the symbols that are attributed to different species. So I haven't f- finished reading this, but it's quite interesting. It sounds fascinating. I have to look that one up. Assuming it's available in English, not just in French. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, uh, so our, our final question is when you look back and you, uh, or, or even now and you think about like a successful swine professional or a leader, what is a characteristic that you think that sets them apart from somebody that might not be as, as successful? Uh, the first characteristic, they always want to learn. They, they're never satisfied with what they've got. They always try to improve uh, systematically. That's a lifelong th- thing. Uh, the other characteristic that I find in leaders and winners and all that is their understanding of, of their field goes way beyond their field. Like I was giving the example of Bob Morrison. Um, Bob uh, had training as an epidemiologist. He could do biostatistics, analyze data and all that. But he had an intimate knowledge of the field understood what was behind the data, including the value of the data. And he went beyond that to get training, like, as I mentioned, his MBA, so that he could relate better to the individuals he was working with um, and, and, and address the issue of, oh, well, if we do this, uh, because sometimes, you know, Al Lehman would say that, the decision, uh, you know, doing nothing, the decision of doing nothing is a decision. Uh, because uh, sometimes that's the best thing you can do. But you cannot just say that, you know, uh, by, by just guessing. You need to back it up with data. And so those leaders who have, I'll give you another example. I have a Eric Gonder who just retired, uh, he was with Goldsboro Milling, and he was kind of the chief vet on the turkey and swine side. And, and this guy even learned how to schedule uh, the, um, the, the placement of flocks, for example, in turkeys, or, or, or sending them to the slaughter plants and all that. And, and, and I thought, well, he was very far from veterinary medicine. But he told me, he said, I got to learn everything that I had to do with the production of turkeys and swine. And so I was invited to the decision table. You see, if you stay strictly in your field, extremely narrow field, uh, yeah, we may ask your opinion, but you're not going to be a decision maker. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it reminds when you when you go back and you, you were talking about the thing of like, you know, somebody coming and telling you, well, you should implement this but they have no understanding of how that actually gets implemented or what impact that's going to be, right? So clearly understanding more than just your area. That's it. And understanding the ins and outs. I remember I wanted to learn English. 
many years ago, I was I was a, a late teenager, and I, I really figured I needed to learn English uh, to get around. And so I, I went to work uh, for uh, uh, hybrid turkeys. And um, and one day they told me they say today um, uh, you're just going to have to vaccinate uh, 300 uh, reproductive uh, uh, males. Uh, we call them toms. Um, and once you've done that, hey, the day is yours. I thought, okay, I'll be done like maximum an hour. I mean, 300 birds, what can it be? Well, these were big birds. They did not appreciate getting uh, <laughs> stabbed. And a few hours later, by the time I was done, my arms were blue. I'd been hit by, because they have wings and, they, uh, and, and their claws and the whole thing. Um, boy, now I know if I ask an employee to do something like that, I know what he's getting into. And, and I think that's important because then I, if I tell him, well, you know, I'm going to have to do this. And I realize that may take you four hours and, and, and you'll be sick and tired. Then he realizes <laughs> he knows what I'm, you know, and that helps because if they know that you're aware of what you're asking, then it's a little bit more difficult to say, you know, you don't know what you're yeah. talking about, you know, because yeah. you show that. <laughs> that's part of good leadership as well. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well, we're coming up to the hour, <laughs> so it's one of the longest podcasts I think we've had, but that's good. It's been a great conversation, a lot of good information. Um, so I, I hope you enjoyed being on it, and I, I'll thank you again for coming on, and definitely I think we'll have you on in the future. We'd be really interested to know about the project that you're working on when you start to get some, some more results, so looking forward to that. So thank you, and thank everyone for listening. Thank you.